Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Friends Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and today I am joined by Marius Rutt. Marius, how are you doing? How's it, Nick? How's it? Uh, what's happening? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a nice clear day. It's warm for winter. Um, mm. That's going to change at the end of the week. Uh, and I'm also joined today by Makone Maja. Makone, how are you doing? Hello, good to be back here with you guys. It's been a bit of a minute. Yes, uh, but it is very good indeed to have you back with us. So before we start, I just want to do a quick little um, advert for the launch of a book um, from the IRR's Head of Policy Research, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, who is launching her book, Countdown to Socialism, which goes into the uh, minutiae of ANSI policy and the ideas behind the National Democratic Revolution, which is sort of the animating idea of how the ANC views South African society. Uh, that book is going to be launched in Cape Town uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, 6 or 6.30 at the exclusive books water uh, at the exclusive books at the waterfront in Cape Town. Uh, so do go down and check that out. The book will be on sale there. There's also going to be a Joburg launch of the book um, next week, Wednesday, uh, uh, at around about the same time in Bryanston, but we'll give you more details of that closer to the time. So, with that in mind, let us go into the news of today. And the first one is a discussion of where South Africa stands fiscally. And uh, to the surprise of no one, uh, not in a great place. Now, the warning bell has been sounded for a while about South Africa running out of money. Um, and it hasn't been as dramatic, I think, as some of those predictions said. Uh, and, and part of that is due to some unexpected windfalls um, during uh, COVID, there was a bit of a sh uh, commodity boom and the mines suddenly paid this big amount of tax that helped rescue the government's uh, deficits a little bit. Uh, but that's fallen back in line now and we're kind of back to the baseline and the deficit is not looking good. Now, a VITS uh, public economy project paper has looked into this and has found out that actually government has been able to reduce one of its greatest costs, that being the public sector wage bill. Uh, in real terms, government employees have on average experienced a 9% fall in their basic pay since the pandemic. This has helped reduce overall expenditure growth to historically low levels. So uh, expenditure is still growing. It's just growing much slower than it, than it has up till now. But uh, despite this, we're not even close to being able to reach Treasury's targets. This is something I was very skeptical about the government being able to do, but... Uh, they have actually managed to, I think, push. I think they're, they're going for a 3% increase for most public servants. Uh, that, that's the number I've seen I've seen thrown about. Um, and despite despite this, this achievement, our finances aren't looking good. In fact, our debt ratio, according to this paper, will not stabilize at 73% uh, debt to GDP ratio by 2025, uh, but will likely be closer to 80% which is way off of target and is not sustainable. And the main reason for this is because the government has very few options apart from economic growth. It's difficult to cut services because a lot of those services are already stretched pretty thin of low quality. We know the public health sector, the education sector, all of these things are not in a good place. It's difficult to cut public servant wage bills even further because there's a lot of political pressure on the government to not do that. Uh, and there would be social unrest if these services continue to deteriorate. At the same time, government can't raise taxes because 
we're already taxed so much. And when there isn't a lot of profit to go around, if you raise taxes, you're just going to shrink the economy. You're not really going to raise too much more revenue. So the only solution, it seems, is to grow out of the problem. And with economic growth looking at less than 1% this year, uh, somewhere between, I think, 0.4 and 0.9, South Africa is in no place to climb out of this deficit hole. So, McCorney, let me start with you. Um, firstly, I mean, we've talked about it before on the show, but why is South Africa not growing? And am I right in to say that it, without growth, we're not going to get out of our financial hole? Nick, I think I actually want to touch on um, the title of that presentation as well, Austerity Without Consolidation. And what that really points to is how government is able to almost spend outside of its means. So we have always been positioned as sort of living above our, our means as a government. Um, and that presentation shows exactly that. Now, our growth prospects likely uh, that presentation also touches on two things that the IMF flagged. One is that um, growth rate that was pegged at initially, I think, 1%. And then they came, did that tour in the country, then wiped out that 1% and left us at 0.1. And two is that debt-to-income ratio, which is at 75%. And now uh, projections from that Professor Michael Sachs indicate that it will likely go to 80% um, debt-to-income ratio in 2025. As far as growth, which is one of your questions, it's quite unlikely, I think, given the load shedding situation in the country, it's just hard to see how uh, businesses can continue to manufacture at higher levels than when load shedding isn't there, when load shedding is in place. So I think it's the government is sort of being washed with some cold water over their faces. And hopefully this sets in a reality that you actually have to balance the books if you're going to spend as much as you do. And hopefully this brings in that consolidation aspect of the report. Morris, what do you make of this? I mean, do you, th uh, do you think that the, the one of the theories has been that when South Africa finally hits, it's kind of great debt crisis that it's going to force the government to reform in some way. So firstly, I just want you to talk about why we have such slow, tiny slow growth beyond just load shedding. Um, and I, I just want to make a point here on load shedding that uh, uh, the Minister of Electricity uh, very recently, two weeks ago, was um, talking up the idea that load shedding was kind of, you know, we could see the end in sight. We had had a low period of load shedding for a while. It looked like maybe we we're going to turn the corner. And as if divine providence intervened at that moment to strike down his hubris, suddenly we get cold and then we get lots of bad news. Uh, the, the COO of ESCOM looks like he's going to be stepping down after 30 years in the job. And Kuburg, which is one of the uh, Kuburg Unit 1, which is one of the power plants that's been off for a long time, uh, undergoing repairs and refitting, uh, looks like it's going to be delayed and coming back online. It was supposed to come back online in September. And this throws out a lot of ESCOM's plan because they have to switch off Unit 2 at Kuburg in October. So we could have a thousand megawatts just taken off the grid, um, just like that, which would, as you can imagine, not be good. Um, so, Morris, what, what do you make of this? Why are we in the place that we are now? I think it's, a lot of it is because of infrastructure. <clears throat> as you say, ESCOM and load shedding. You know, not uh, every business can afford a generator and so on. And even apart from that, I've got a friend. He uh, actually opened a butchery uh, last year sometime. He's still got his uh, ordinary day job in corporates and what have you. But he says where, where this butchery is, is out in northwest Johannesburg. Uh, cables, uh, 
these electric cables often get stolen there and then the place is without uh, electricity for three or four days and him and his business partners can't afford a generator to keep the place running for you know three or four days so this is just one business and this is not even when we're talking about uh just load shedding this is other kinds of uh, electricity um you know interruptions and that all comes down to kind of the breakdown of the state so i mean this is to do with infrastructure is to do with security and crime and so on this way i mean just using my friend's business as a microsoft this is where you know it's uh, the security situation plus infrastructure all comes together to uh, you know hinder his business and i mean as i say that's just one guy and he only employs like one or two people but times that by you know hundred thousand whatever it is across the country and not every business only employs one or two people rather employ 10 or 20 people even if it's a smallish business so there's a lot of people and this has kinds of all kinds of multiply effects on the economy and south africa's had so many own goals when it comes to growing the economy if, if the economy had grown at five percent every year since 1994 i mean i don't know the exact number but we would probably almost be double the size which would mean far more money in the economy far more people employed far fewer people living in poverty far more people would be healthier because there'd be more clinics and people would be able to afford healthcare and all kinds of knock-on effects and you know and then also because it just comes down to the um, human potential that's been lost People haven't been able to, you know, get jobs that um, they can provide for their family and, you know, kind of work that they really want to do and so on. So it's also then we get to savings. You know, people have been able to save as much. That also has all kinds of knock-on effects. So a lot of it is, as I say, just own goals. I mean, recently uh, there was a, a bunch of the, I think it was the German Chamber of Commerce. They came together and said a lot of German companies are actually thinking of pulling out of South Africa altogether, not because of issues such as crime or loaching. Just because it's so difficult for their, they want to send guys out here as technicians or managers or whatever it is, German nationals, that can't get visas or take so long for them to get visas. People have put their lives on hold. A lot of companies are thinking of actually pulling out of South Africa just on something easy like that. So it's quite, I mean, it's, you know, something that's pretty easy to fix, actually. I mean, it's really an administrative issue, but we can't even get that right. So there's so many own goals. And yeah, we, we know, we're not going to get to the five or 6% growth we need anytime soon. If we don't do if we don't get that right and see somebody says in the comments that the nc and stolen millions over the last 20 years i think that's also a lot of corruption and crime has also uh, you know contributed to issues we have in this economy right and you know add to that all of the regulatory impairments things like bee things like the excessive uh, uh regulatory and licensing and burdens and in administrative incompetence uh, you know if you want to apply for a mining license not only do you have to comply with these sort of racial targets but you also then have to go to a department that just sometimes doesn't give you a license because they don't feel like it uh, and that is really hurtful particularly to foreign investment but also to local south africans developing uh, businesses um, I saw, I to, sorry nick i just want to yeah. say i see somebody in the comments is italy spain us uk Etc. All have GDP ratios, debt to GDP ratios of over 100, which is not good. I don't know why this is being mentioned. I mean, South Africa and these also much bigger economies, which have more money to pay these kinds of things. This isn't a high debt to GDP ratio is bad. Doesn't matter what kind of country it is, and it's especially bad for a place like South Africa, where we're growing at less than one percent a year. Right, and when your economy is more robust, uh, exactly. lenders are willing to give you more leeway if you have a lot of debt because they expect you to pay them back. I know like Japan is the great example of that, which has this huge debt to debt GDP ratio, but it's still considered a very safe place to borrow money from. Um, but South Africa does not share that quality. Uh, so McCorney, um, 
we sort of this is the position we find ourselves in fiscally but then we look at what government is kind of responding to this and you know they've done some cutting with the public wage uh, bill but then <laughs> you look at what they're interested in and it's for example nhi national health insurance which is expected to be hugely expensive and have to raise taxes by a significant amount in order to uh cover some of its costs and this is this is really kind of a mismatch isn't it Definitely. That's one of the things the article actually speaks to is if Treasury actually came out and did the calculations for how much the NHI will cost, which we still don't know, right? There's a lot of speculation. A bunch of economists are doing the math, but you don't actually have a figure coming out of Treasury itself to say exactly how much of the public sector wage bill will be apportioned to the NHI uh, of, of, of the public wage sector bill that remains available for such expenditure. So you still get the sense that there's a lot of ideas about how to spend government money by the government itself, but never really going back to actually balancing the books. And on Marius's friend's anecdote, I think every single one of us at least know one business like that. So we're all carrying these stories or these experiences with businesses that are just not surviving under the current economic climate and the only thing left to do is leave, right? Businesses that can, like the Germans and as the German embassy have flagged uh, issue of visas to be a, a problem, what they will do is they will take their stuff and their money and go elsewhere. Right. And just on your hypothetical is if we had, you know, managed to double the size of our economy, our GDP per capita, uh, so GDP divided by the number of people in the country would be kind of similar to places like Russia, China, Costa Rica. Um, than where it is now. All right. Um, let's go on to talking about... Uh, Sorry, Nick, of, just to... Yes. And also, those are countries that are not exactly considered to be rich. So if our GDP was right. double, you know, I mean, they're like kind of middle-income countries and obviously is, China's obviously got a lot of rich people in rich areas now and so on, but they're still not, you know, it's, it's not a, like the levels of, say, Australia or Norway or whatever the case is. Right, we'd be nicely above the world average. Yeah, yeah. Kind of around there rather than falling below it, which is what we've been for a while. All right, so Maurice, you wanted to talk about this one as uh, sort of the dichotomy of South Africa, how we can be a bit of a strange place. So there was a survey recently of readers of the Telegraph newspaper in the United Kingdom. And they were asked what the best place in the world to visit was as a tourist. And South Africa came in first place. Um, I think uh, it's driven a lot by, by uh, the, the great tourism value of Cape Town, which is regularly ranks in the world as one of the best cities in the world to visit as a tourist. And yet, while there are definitely a lot of people out there who are fans of South Africa, tourists who are interested in coming here, people who want to come see our wildlife, uh, people who want to explore, you know, the winelands, uh, people who want to, I don't know, go stargazing in the desert. At the same time, we have all these impediments to our tourism industry. We've talked before about, you know, regulatory burdens and visas and things like that. But uh, recently there was a little story that popped up where a, a British Airways pilot um, who uh, decided to go for a jog around the place that he was staying for a layover uh, while in Johannesburg got robbed and stabbed. Uh, he's survived and he's, he's not too badly hurt from the sounds of it. Um, but he's in uh, he's basically been shipped back to the UK to recover from his uh, injuries. And uh, this has been covered extensively by the British papers. A lot of the tabloids really like to cover the sort of people in a foreign country, British people in a foreign country getting hurt stories. 
and that's going to hurt our tourism industry. Um, it's kind of disturbing, though, one of the details in the story that the British airline pilots are not supposed to leave a compound around Melrose Arch where they're all sort of kept together in a group because they're told that it's too dangerous to go outside Johannesburg. I would say they were being a bit over the top, but clearly I'd be wrong because, you know, one of them went out for a job and got stabbed. Um, Morris, what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, as as um, so Tracy, the, the dichotomy of South Africa, I mean, there's obviously amazing place in this country, but at the same time, people live in appalling conditions uh, in a lot of the country. I mean, anybody's been to Cape Town, you know, you land in uh, Cape Town's very well an airport, and you drive to Cape Town, uh, what's in uh, the city itself, and then you see there's kind of shanty towns on the side of the road and so on. Uh, but that all said, though, I mean, South Africa is not unique in this. If you go to, you know, obviously, uh, say somewhere like London is, you know, much safer than uh, Joburg, but there's still places where they're poor people. Obviously, they don't live in conditions that uh, poor people in South Africa live, but they're poor people. There's places, areas you don't really want to go to, and that's any city in the world. I mean, I was also in Colombia last year where uh, I was there for two weeks. I had one or two, I'd say, hairy experiences, but overall, it was pretty pretty safe. I think probably as a Joe Burger, you know where to go and where not to go. So I think it's, it's definitely something that we, it's not something we can just sweep under the carpet and something that we should be concerned about. And especially, I mean, it's a British Airways pilot, not just, you know, some random guy who got drunk and was in a pub and did something silly. You know, he just went for a run, which normal people do, and he got stabbed. So I think it tells you a couple of things. I think it doesn't tell you a whole story about South Africa, but it's also, it does show you that South Africa does have problems. I mean, you don't read about something like this happening in Australia and whatever the cases. So, yeah, it's just... I think it's just this kind of microcosm of the South African situation and actually the world, to be honest. And, you know, uh, and shows you, we, there's a story about a British Airways pilot getting stabbed, but at the same time, the Telegraph, who's, you know, they known as a fairly right-wing newspaper, their readers just voted South Africa the best country in the world to visit. And they also had a separate uh, poll asking which is the best city in the world, and they voted for Cape Town. So it tells you something that, uh, yeah, it's, as I say, it's the, the, the cotton of South Africa, but also doesn't uh, do much for our... Uh, tourism, I don't think. I mean, probably for every person who's thinking of coming to South Africa, if they read that article in the uh, uh, the Sun or whatever newspaper was published, might make them think twice about coming here. And then, you know, for every tourist, however many Irans that come spend here, if they have a good time, then they tell their family and friends they should come to South Africa. But now, how many people decide not to come here because of that story? And I think it's definitely, uh, we. I think South Africa need to do some introspection on this kind of thing. McConnell, what do you make of the story? It's... Um... Uh, I think it really shows the potential for if we got some of the, 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 the policy things and we got some of the law and order things right, uh, our potential to be one of the best and biggest tourism destinations in the world, I think, really is there. Yeah, I'm South Africa's biggest hype woman when it comes to hyping our, our tourism. I think where else can you like view the ocean and the big five in one day? But this reminds me of that that incident where the German tourists were shot to death um, traveling to the Kruger National Park and how shortly after that Minister of Tourism was asked whether there were any cancellations by German tourists coming to South Africa after that event, because I remember that the German media got hold of it first before it was uh, publicized or made public in South Africa. And it turned out nobody canceled on, on their visits, at least not in that particular uh, incident. So it seems people that tour generally don't factor crime as that big of an issue, although I think they should. But 
I think, yeah, this is a big impediment to the South African tourism industry. Us as South Africans are afraid to go jogging, let alone tourists. So I, it's one of those things, if the country does not get a hold of or get ahead of quickly enough, then we stand to lose big, as you've already pointed out, Nick, tourism is a golden goose. And to really afford to lose that, its value on the world scale would be a great travesty. Right. And one of the nice things about tourism is it's an industry that can employ a lot of people who don't have that many skills in other things. Um, and some of those jobs can even be actually quite quite well paying, uh, particularly if you get a little bit yeah. of on-job training. That's so, a big economic multiplier as well, tourism. Exactly. So as a, mm. as a country which has such a bad education system, tourism is a great industry to kind of invest in in the short term because you can get people who you know, have been failed by your education system to still get into the workforce and, and, and get some proper income. I like how in the comments, everyone's just crapping on all the other countries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. um, all right, let us move on, I think, to our last story, probably last story for today. And this is uh, the round, next round of by-elections, which I think are tomorrow, Morris, I speak under correction. Um, mm -hmm. The... Uh, the by, some of the by-elections in George, for example, um, already seem to be quite spicy, as the kids might say, uh, with the good party accusing the DA of trying to cheat by re-registering people who aren't in the by-election ward in the ward. Um, I mean, that's for the IC and such to decide. But clearly, tensions are running high, and I think we're really seeing, you know, we've been seeing for a while now that by-elections are increasingly becoming a kind of important part of the narrative in how we discuss politics in the lead up to 2024. Maurice, uh, what can we expect from the by-elections tomorrow? Uh, yes, there's a couple of uh, interesting uh, by-elections uh, coming up tomorrow. Um, there is, uh, there's three in Mangahung, uh, which are having to be held because uh, some ANC councillors got kicked out of uh, the Mangahung council for voting for a DA speaker. So they, uh, and as far as I know, or I think there's actually four uh, four councillors in Mangahung, and they're all running in those wards as independents. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. There's also a couple of elections in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, where we'll have to, uh, one, one's in Nkandla, which I think is an IFP-held ward. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if uh, the IFP manages to carry on with its surge that's uh, happening in um, KwaZulu-Natal. I think there's some interesting things happening in KwaZulu-Natal politics, so it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And then George, I think, is going to be very interesting. As you say, the, the good uh, the good party has been saying that the DA has been involved in some underhanded dealings. Has been re-registering re re people who don't live in the ward. I mean, uh, we don't know how accurate that is. We'll have to have to wait to see. Good actually wants the election to be postponed, uh, but we'll see what happens. But that is also going to tell you what's happening with uh, kind of the DA support in the rural Western Cape, where it's been pretty soft since the 2021 or since actually since 2019 elections or so on. So in that George by-election, there's uh, or in the last election in, in that ward in uh, George, it was a four-way split. So the ANC, GOOD, the DA, and a local party called the Plaslaka, the Swafta, and Winners all got over 20% of the vote. So I think it's all going to be quite interesting to see what happens tomorrow. So and the thing with uh, by-elections, they're not, um, I like to compare them to a windsock, where, whereas a, a, a poll of everybody uh, before an election is kind of, you know, a satellite picture of what's happening in a place. It shows you which way, where the clouds are and all that kind of thing. I think a by-election's more like a windsock. It kind of tells you which way the wind's blowing, and a good meteorologist can then 
uh, you know, extrapolate from how uh, fast the wind's blowing, the kind of temperatures and so on, what, uh, what's going to happen in the next couple of days with the weather. And I think that's what kind of by-election will tell you, because these are obviously very localized, uh, you know, polls, you know, there can be quite a lot of stuff to do with the, just the local candidates or, you know, specific things happening in that area. But I think if you look at them all together and you take it and you look study the aggregates, then it can tell you what is kind of happening. And I think one of the big takeaways for me from the by-elections over the last, uh, since the 2021 local government elections, is that the ANC outside of KwaZulu-Natal uh, in rural areas is holding very steady. In, in cities, it's getting annihilated. In the municipalities, in the metro municipalities, it's you know doing very badly. It's losing 10 to 20 percentage points. But in rural areas, uh, outside of KwaZulu-Natal, generally speaking, this obviously doesn't hold for every single by-election. The ANC is still remarkably, uh, remarkably strong. It's still getting 70, 80, even 90% of the votes in some places. So I think that's also when people say the ANC is only going to get 40% in next year's election. I think they, you know, I think that's, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, the ANC is going to be saved by its rural voters, I think. And I, I, I still don't think it's impossible that the ANC will get above 50% of the vote next year without doing anything too dodgy, without any like kind of ZANU PF type rigging. And even if they do get under 50, I don't see them getting significantly under 50. I still see them getting 47, 48%. But yeah, so I think those by-elections tomorrow, there's nine of them. So they'll, they'll give us a nice overview of uh, what's happening and the kind of political pulse in the country. So we haven't had any, uh, I think, national polls for a while now. Um, there've been some, there were a whole sort of rash of leaks and things, I think closer to the beginning of the year. Um, I think there was, there've been some done by our former our former CEO, Franz Cronier's new uh, 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 think tank, the Social Research Foundation, which has looked into some of those. And I've, generally speaking, the polls seem to have had the ANC somewhere between 45 and 50%. Um, uh, we're waiting to see, I think, when the next round of those come out. I have no idea when they are. But uh, McCorney, what's your, if, if you can zoom out nice and far, what's your sort of sense of how uh, the parties are faring at the moment? I think that the one party that really does seem to be struggling a bit right now at finding its place is the EFF. They're doing a lot with the seats they do have, but they just don't seem to be, I think, holding the public attention as they once did. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, I think I've called it here as well, that I, the EFF seems to have reached a cap. I don't see them growing outside of their current constituency. And in order to do that, they beg for a racist or a somewhat racial incident to happen and then they capitalize on that two people fighting in a spur <laughs> exactly and then they have to go burglar into that spur to pretend to be fighting for justice and for the rights of black people and so forth so again those sort of events uh help and propel the EFF's numbers. But outside of that, I don't get the sense that people trust the EFF to operate on any government level. But um, speaking of by-elections, Marius recently wrote me in on one of his projects, um, just documenting different results from the by-elections. And it really wasn't very encouraging to see that a lot of the ANC wards continue to be held by the ANC. They don't seem to lose those wards to Many of the options, in, in fact, one of the by-elections he had me look into was the Dizobotlawan, where you have about 10 parties running, right? You have local um, parties that are set up specifically for that ward, for example, the Save Dizobotla Movement Party, and people are just not opting for those. They just continue to vote toward the ANC. So I think 
where polling um, is related, I tend to side a lot with what Marius says. I'm not sure exactly what factors the polls are looking at when they poll people on their position to vote, um, especially where they place the ANC at anywhere near the low 40s. But I tend to, from my own experience, from the people that I speak to, but also from the by-elections, I get the sense that the ANC will likely come out victorious in 2024. Mm, I tend to disagree. I think that... Uh... The, the problem with relying on the rural votes is firstly that it's it's not as big of a vote as it used to be. Um, and that also the turnout in rural areas tends to be very low. And so even if you get 70% of the vote, or let's say 85% of the vote in Limpopo, uh, it's not as valuable as it could be because the cities will turn out more. And and I do think one of the one of the difficulties I think in the polling right now is that uh, it's gonna it's very difficult to form what they call a likely voter screen. Because if you've polled the whole population, you find people with a certain, uh, say, this is how much they support the ANC, this is how much they support the DA, etc. But that's not actually who shows up to the polls. And quite a lot of polls do try to figure that out, but that's often where things get a bit tricky because you don't know what turnout's going to be on the day. And so I'd be very curious. I, I hope there's a lot more polling this time before our election than there was uh, before the previous one. Um, there was a time, I think, when South Africa didn't have that much polling in general. Uh, uh, and, and that's gotten better over the years. But um, at the moment, we're a bit starved. Any final thoughts, Morris, before we close off? Yeah, I think uh, you make a good point there. Uh, but I think the real places to be to watch next year's election, as I say, I think it's probably going to be pretty much, pretty much status quo, nationally speaking. I think the ANC is either going to win or just need a small part to stay in power. But I think Gateng and KwaZulu-Natalzo is going to get very interesting. I think the ANC is going to do pretty badly there. And that's we could see the, yeah, we're going to see some interesting permutations, I think, of coalitions. We might see a kind of an ANCFF coalition in Gauteng, or might even see the coming first the iteration of a moonshot pact in KwaZulu Natal and Gauteng. I'm not sure the numbers are going to work. I think in KwaZulu Natal and Gauteng, we need the EFF probably to get a majority, even for the opposition. So it's going to be, it's all going to be very interesting as the Chinese curse goes. I don't know, you live in interesting times. I think that's uh, all of us South Africans, or oh, actually everybody in the world, actually, to be honest. <laughs> all right. With that, uh, we'll see you tomorrow at 5 with the Daily Friend Wrap. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Cheers, everyone.